Today's podcast was supported by an independent educational grant from AbbVie, Astellas and Pfizer Inc., AstraZeneca, Genomic Health, Merck, and Sanofi Genzyme. Thank you. Today is the second episode of Highlights from AUA 2019, the evolving role of the urologist in metastatic and castration-resistant prostate cancer. In episode two, we're going to be talking about setting up and managing an advanced prostate cancer clinic in the community setting and those unique challenges, as well as the role of chemotherapy, treatment sequencing, and future approaches to the treatment of prostate cancer. We will get started by talking to Dr. Benjamin Lowentritt, Medical Director of Chesapeake Urology. I'm Ben Lowentritt. I'm the Medical Director of the Prostate Cancer Program at Chesapeake Urology Associates. So my talk is on setting up and management of advanced prostate cancer in the community urology setting uh, with unique challenges as a focus. Right, so uh, we've set up an advanced prostate cancer program across our uh, fairly large geography in Maryland uh, to try to identify and incorporate treatments for patients as much as possible. I think uh, one of the, the realities that we see is that there sometimes is a disconnect between who should be managing these patients as they advance. Uh, it's my belief that urologists should remain central to this and uh, that does mean though that, that we have to get a little bit more organized around it. Uh, our oncology colleagues are wonderful and, and great in, in a number of the treatments, but they're not always as focused on this disease as we are. Uh, this is a set of patients that have been with us oftentimes for uh, 5, 10, 15 years or more uh, and have really, really have a strong relationship with, and, and I, I do believe we can create the, the programs that can really manage them in the best way, the ways that the patients themselves would prefer. Well, thank you, uh, and I want to thank the, the planners of this activity. It's really great to, to be able to be here and speak to you. This is a very different talk than what we've been hearing today. So, you know, this is uh, hopefully it looked like about a third of you were uh, practicing in the community and another third of you or so are residents and fellows who hopefully might see that as an option. Um, and I hope for everyone it's a bit of an interest. And, and uh, this was the title that was given to me as unique challenges for setting up treatment. I don't know that the and, and sort of my my... Uh, discussion here is I don't know how unique the challenges are, but I do want to go through in a way what I think is a very effective way to at attach this. But um, my disclosures I, I are, are listed here and in the program. Um, so the first thing I want to do is, is, and we've heard a little bit about this today, but it's sort of level set us as to where we've been in the recent history uh, and, and kind of where we're going right now, and then look at really how we can meet some of these challenges in the community setting. So, um, you know, it looks like in looking at the room, it's probably about half and half of people that were in practice before uh, 2004 and those of us that are trained after or, or started or, or still in training. Um, but it's, it's, it's sort of important to know that just 10 to 15 years ago, um, there really wasn't a whole lot of new activity. We had just had docetaxel in 2004. Um, this is a time before all the talk of uh, volume to value. Uh, I, I sort of put out here in, in, in talking about some of the challenges that I think are, are, are shared across is that uh, in academic settings, there was a lot of more interest in making sure people are clinically productive. And then you had this movement in a lot of community settings of consolidation, either among private independent groups or uh, within a hospital. So uh, we've seen this, uh, hopefully, you know, at this point, this is not a foreign concept, this graph. Um, and although this is only one pathway that patients may take, because as we know, a lot of patients present metastatic at the beginning, it's very illustrative to what we're trying to go. But this is really the state of, of uh, prostate cancer management up until about 2009. And if you look at how most of these patients were managed, um, certainly this is how I was trained. Arguably, all these patients were kept in urology up to the point where they were essentially symptomatic. Uh, and that was where a lot of the use of, of chemo and some of the palliative agents were used. That maybe not should have been the way they were used, but is was the way they were used. So if we look now, okay, this is 2009, and we say what's happened in the last 10 years, it's this. Right, And this is already out of date. As we've heard today, there's some new agents coming maybe in here. Um, so, you know, I, I think this is just to illustrate 
In addition, for those that are interested, there's a ton of research, as we've heard, going throughout here. And this is uh, not the focus of my discussion, but just to point out, if we overlay that time frame that urology has been used to taking care of these patients, much of these advanced treatments that we're here talking about today fall into the realm of when urology has really been seeing these patients. So um, it really leaves us with a choice uh, and, and is... The, the bottom line is these patients are very complex. Um, the discussions we're having today and we've continued to have uh, aren't getting any simpler. It's not, um, uh, we don't expect it to. And these constantly evolve. So another, what you may consider somewhat unique uh, uh, challenge for us is that we do have to be a little bit wary of some of these internal costs if we're setting something up within our practice. But that really isn't unique. Um, it, and, you know, I think I, I hesitate a little bit to, to talk about business, but I think that's one of the reasons I was invited here. This is really the only discussion that we're going to have that has anything to do with it. The bottom line is, and this is fundamental to what we do, is we believe that if we're doing the right things for the patient, the business stuff will work out. And, you know, these good medicine and good business shouldn't be separate. So to leave it at that, the real question is, is do we want to do this because it's the right thing for our patients? So when we're setting up a, a program to take care of advanced prostate cancer, essentially, number one, it's to deliver the highest quality of care. And to really believe that that's something we can deliver within our groups. Um, I think it's important to sort of keep in context that patients in general seem to want to stay with us. Many of these patients have been our patients for years and years. And going to another provider, whether it be a, a, an academic-based or a, an oncology-based practice, is often a really, really dramatic step for patients. So we find that they want to stay with us. So if we're going to take care of them, we have to really make sure we're meeting certain goals. We have to be sort of nimble. And I would argue this is something we should be strong at um, because as a uh, we're not weighted down in some respects by history. We have the ability to adapt, hopefully, fairly quickly. Um, we do need to support patients throughout their journey. Uh, and, and this concept of being their preferred caregivers is important. And when possible, I think it's also very important for us to be involved in research. We're where a lot of the patients lie. But if you look at these goals overall, whether you're in a what we consider independent practice or an institutional-based practice, these are the same goals. The differences really are what are the resources that are already out there for us. So a lot of this is being able to sort of build from the ground up a program that makes sense. Um, I think what we also, in the context of this, patients are more informed than ever. They're going to be doing their own research, so many patients are going to come with their own ideas, and if we're not able to provide that service, they're going to find someone that can. And I do think in the context of, of what we're seeing in uh, uh, healthcare reform, this shift from volume to value, it's hard to know how it's going to be applied to cancer care. It really hasn't been in a, in a large com a component. But being the care providers and being able to be the primary care providers for these patients is going to be essential for us to be aware of what is actually happening to our patients. So we need to continue to be involved. And, and what you'll hear me say throughout this is, if we go into this saying, what would I want if I were a patient? How would I want to be treated? And we build around that. I think we're only going to see success for everybody involved. So this doesn't come without some of these internal challenges. I don't think, once again, I'm not sure these are unique. But we have to educate ourselves, and it's great. Y'all are here. That's what this, these types of sessions are about. But the complexity that you're seeing in here are all layered on top of patients that are all individuals, and even though we're going to go through a number of cases, not everyone falls into a clear situation. You do obviously need to develop your own uh, expertise. I think within a group, especially as you talk about larger groups, but even within a group that's not that large, we know there's a lot of practice variability from doctor to doctor, from office to office. A lot of it might be uh, uh, based on the when the doctor's trained. We still know that that's probably the biggest indicator of how someone practices is based on what they did in training. Uh, so we need to sort of get over some of these hurdles that happen in any time of change of this idea of pride and control and are we am I being told what to do and I think that is an ongoing challenge it's more of a behavioral discussion than anything else but it's also true that these patients take more time um, and that doesn't always mesh with uh, a busy clinical practice so the solution that I'm proposing is really to look at this from more of a, a systematic approach 
uh, to incorporate what we can uh, from the advances in data uh, analytics and then provide the support around that. So we're essentially building this idea of a, of a specialized cancer center from the ground up. So this is the rough framework, um, and you know I, I think we're going to spend a little time on a couple of these. I'm not going to go through everything, uh, but what I think is important to say is that really, you know, the pathway development, and I'll talk very briefly about it, which is what most of the discussions around today, and certainly what um, the AUA and SUO provide in, in terms of guidelines, is is not the central part of this. It's core to it, but it's not the main thing that we're going to be talking about because uh, that's something that in many ways is developed for us. Uh, by groups like this. Um, but all of these other things, whether it be facility development, whether it be things like navigation and patient support, and that includes being aware of what the financial burdens are on our patients, um, these are all really essential to, to, to be built. I'm going to spend just a, a little bit on, on a couple of these. So first, let's just look at, at data. Um, you know, this is the era of big data. Um, why is it important, though, for our patients? And I, I think one thing is we talked about the variability across a practice. Understanding what's happening to patients and where the patients actually are is, is key. If we're relying on an individual practitioner at an individual visit to recognize everything that's happening, it's, it's often going to fall through the cracks or may delay care. Um, Certainly, if we're participating in research, finding those patients at the right time is key. That's, that goes without saying. And here's some of these theoretical things, right? I mean, I, I, uh, I'm not going to throw stones, but many of us probably get mailings from certain institutions that love to present their data and talk pound their chest a little bit. I don't necessarily think this is a great reason to do it, but hey, marketing is marketing. Um, more and more, our payers are wanting it. Um, I don't think it actually directly helps us make money, but it may help us from losing money if we know our data. Um, I think because we can, and uh, really the main reason is because we take care of patients, and the patients deserve this information. So if we understand what's going on and we can take the best care of them, I think that's, that's key. But the problem is, is the data that other people are collecting on us, which is happening constantly, is flawed. Or at least it's coming from a different perspective. If it's from our payers, if it's from a pharmaceutical company, or whoever else might be mining certain amounts of our data. So if we don't know it, it we're going to be left to their interpretation. If we're really coming at it that we want to say, okay, how can we do better? We need to be the ones defining what the data is that we're collecting. Um, so... There's a few different ways to do this. I think uh, the manual approach, whether it's from my physicians ourselves, a research team, or a navigator team, is always going to be flawed. Um, you know, uh, the practices that that I work with now diagnosed over 2,500 patients last year with prostate cancer. It's going to be pretty hard to expect a manual review of all of those. So while the next option would be EMR, we're all forced into using EMR. It'd be great if they could provide this information. I've yet to see an EMR system that can actually give us actionable data from what is currently being used. So um, in many cases, if you're interested in this, we're left to finding some of these outside sources, whether it be something like Aqua, which thankfully the AUA is working on, or others. Um, you know, there, there are many different systems that kind of layer onto the EMR to try to pull out more actionable and uh, substantive uh, data. So, you know, then the question is what data? And I think this is going to be individual depending on your own goals. But what we use it for is basically to say, okay, let's actually identify the patients that are out there being treated and then track them. And then let's look proactively so we can say, okay, if patients are going to be coming in within the next few weeks, how can we better treat them at that encounter? Can we key someone in that they need an updated testosterone, imaging, maybe they qualify for a treatment and they need to have that discussion or be referred on to a specialist. And then, of course, as we get more and more into established pathways, how are we doing in, in adhering to those pathways? So just one last word on data. You know, it doesn't speak for itself. It still requires a very strong involvement from a clinical approach because uh, data analytics only gets us so far. Um, it does require the ability to, to, to get good information in so that we can get good information out. All right, so uh, moving on to this next, and I sort of already touched on the fact that I'm not really going to talk about a pathway, but I do think, and I'm a strong advocate for developing expertise in this within a practice. So clinical leadership is, remains core to this. 
Um, and I think if you're in a, a well-integrated practice, you can develop somebody with expertise quickly, get them to meetings like this, and get them trained quickly, um, because the, the numbers are there within any practice if you're actually guiding them to an individual. Um, and then that person can continue to be a resource for the entire practice. Uh, once again, it should be very compatible with any research efforts, um, but also by attending meetings and kind of being available, you can see what's coming and be prepared for it. Um, this is not done in a vacuum. I mean, the entire goal of this is to be a, a key part and, and maybe the central part of a team, but it continues to be a con completely collaborative effort, whether that be external to the practice or within the practice through things like tumor boards, uh, involvement of advanced practice providers, and of course, making sure it all fits in with the overall direction of the practice. Um, and then the, the last thing I'm going to talk about here is our, our ways of sort of clinically providing this at the um, point where the patient is. So I think one thing that we haven't talked about a lot today is what is the definition of advanced prostate cancer, or maybe what keys somebody into being falling into this category. And there's a bunch of different definitions that can be used out there. Um, uh, we've talked through a number of these already today. For us, any patient that is on long-term ADT is considered advanced. Um, that allows us to sort of key in and really focus on those patients, both for the, the quality of life needs, the overall health needs, but of course the disease progression needs. Um, I think when you, th when, when you look at most people's practices about how those ADT injection, whether it's every three, four, six months, depending on what agents you might be using, those tended to be very quick interactions. And what we recognized is that's a really missed opportunity for those patients. Uh, patients actually know that they have a bad cancer, yet we're just essentially, we're waving at the door from them in many cases and saying, hey, how you feeling? Great. Okay, see you in six months. And so that um, has keyed us into sort of saying, okay, if we can give those patients to providers that are working off a little bit more uh, protocols for maintenance of health, for monitoring of disease, and really get deeper into the patient's experience, we're finding a lot of things that are helping our patients, and the patients do really seem to prefer it. Um, I think the reason that we use our, our APPs, mostly physician assistants in our group, is because they are willing in many cases to work off of protocols. It's not an easy thing to get physicians to do. Um, and uh, they develop their own expertise. They develop these relationships with the patients. And they're able to communicate both with the urologist who's local in that office and also uh, refer them on as needed to the champion. So this really sets us all up, and as I said, we've also worked to build facilities and, and capabilities within the practice uh, to make it happen. Um, there continue to be ongoing efforts, you know, ways that we can really be more of a comprehensive center, whether that means better alignment or even bringing within uh, the practice medical oncology, radiation oncology, and the like. I think those relationships are key, and as things get more and more complex, having the ability to provide a wide range of services is important. Uh, a key thing, though, is we have to recognize, and I think this is true of all uh, uh, cancer fields, as we get more involved with this, we need to be better about treating end-of-life decisions and deciding when to stop therapy. And I, and I know that is something that we aren't always that uh, uh, focused on and really should be. Um, nutrition, genetic counseling, we just heard a, a great discussion about this. These are now all things that are, as these patients are living longer, but maybe having different options, they're really key to making sure we're on, we're on board with it. Now, one of the things is, and just as a bit of a plug out there, one of the external challenges we see is that this is often something that's not being taught to our residents. So we have residents that are continuing to come out that have a basic knowledge of, of uh, advanced prostate cancer, but in most institutions, those are not actually being taken care of under their care. Um, you know, I want to applaud Dr. Cookson. I know that he is, is different in this on something, but I hope that we see that urologists continue to become in, involved. Um, we're also seeing less and less independent practices. Um, you know, my personal belief is this is a urology, a disease that urologists should be key in, in taking care of. Um, we want to make sure that continues. And of course, over all of this is balancing the, the, the costs of all of these, the care itself, um, in what is going to, to evolve in, in our healthcare uh, system. So, I, I, you know, in, in conclusion, I don't think that there are a lot of unique challenges to uh, doing this in the community practice. I think what's great is that we're able to actually build 
what you could consider a, a virtual cancer center without walls, really focused on these patients and the treatments that are available to them, and and you know try to do that in a way that isn't uh, maybe held down to some of the history of some of the institutions that are out there, and really focus on the patients themselves. So thank you very much, and uh, appreciate it. After the talk, we asked Dr. Lowenshirt if there's anything he wanted to close with. So I think the big thing uh, that I'm trying to uh, get out there is that the challenges may or may not really be unique, but in many cases, uh, these are programs that are being built from scratch where there is no existing infrastructure. So uh, when we really focus on a disease and a rapidly evolving disease, uh, we can identify services that we really want to identify for the patients. Next, we're going to talk to Dr. Evan Yu from the University of Washington about the role of chemotherapy, treatment sequencing, and future approaches. Dr. Yu, I'll let you introduce yourself. Hello, I'm Evan Yu. I'm a medical oncologist at the University of Washington Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. Today I'm going to be talking about just about everything to do with metastatic castration resistant prostate cancer. So pragmatic thoughts on sequencing of agents, chemotherapy use, which will be part of that, and also on future directions where we're going, novel therapies. Let's listen in to Dr. Yu's presentation. All right, everybody, let's gather your attention. I, I think we want to finish on time, so uh, I'm going to go ahead. Here are all my wonderful disclosures, and I will be discussing therapeutic agents that do not have regulatory approval. As my talk, and my title didn't come up, but basically my title is everything else. All right, so whatever we haven't talked about, but really what we're going to talk about is pragmatic sequencing and novel therapies, novel directions. So this I'm not going to spend a lot of time on. You kind of know for high-volume metastatic disease, docetaxel is very reasonable. Abiraterone for either high or low volume or high or low risk disease that's hormone-sensitive. And then when you get to metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer, you really have six FDA-approved options in the pre-chemotherapy space, minimally asymptomatic or symptomatic or asymptomatic cepul cell T or abiraterone enzalutamide. Once you get to symptomatic, radium or docetaxel, and then post-docetaxel, there's cabazitaxel. So here's just uh, really showing you the nice p-values there. I'm not going to dwell on this slide either, but you know the list of agents that are FDA-approved for metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer, and that show a survival benefit. And so let's just start from the beginning. And again, the way I like to think about it is when I see a new patient who comes to me with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer, I go through in my head, what have they received before? Oh, nothing? Okay, well, what are the options here? The first thing I ask myself, does this patient have indolent enough disease to receive cell T? Because it's best for asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic. We know survival curve separated six months, as I mentioned. And most patients don't get a PSA decline. It's rare, okay? Very, very rare. Occasionally you see it but it's very rare. No improvement in progression-free survival time to progression, but there is this magical survival benefit. And the reason this magic works is, is that if you think about the mechanism of vaccine-based therapy is your immune system just doesn't go boom like that. You have to educate the immune system, you provide a vaccine, you educate your T cells and B cells, and probably how this drug really works is you're not getting anything up front and your immune system's kicking in later. By that point in time, you may have already progressed and move on to the next therapy, et cetera, and in the clinical trial, you're not gonna be able to detect what effect was what. Was it the next therapy? Was it this? Is it this therapy? Who knows, but there's a survival benefit, and I think that's the only way you can get a survival benefit without dropping the PSA, without improving time to progression, is it's a drug that really takes a while to work and kicks in later, all right? So, well-tolerated. This just shows a post-hoc analysis looking at the patients that were on the impact cepul cell T phase 3 trial and breaking them down based on their core PSA quartiles. And really they use PSA here as kind of a, a substitute for volume of disease or aggressiveness of disease, and it makes sense. What they showed is the patients who had the lowest baseline PSA quartile when you compared the cepul cell T to the control arm, you had the best hazard ratio. 
50% reduction in the risk of death. Now, fortunately for all quartiles, it's all less than one, the hazard ratio there. But clearly, the most dramatic effect, I think, of Sapul Cell T are for the patients who have the lowest volume, lowest risk, most indolent disease. So that's who I would select. And that's why I put it first there, is just because I'm kind of marching forward in a pragmatic order of how I can think about things. Now, I'm not going to go through abiraterone in great detail because we've seen the data. We've seen the efficacy data. We've seen the toxicity data. What I'm going to talk about here is just some things to be careful of. And I know this has been discussed before, but just think about the mechanism of action. Blocking conversion, salt, sugar, sex, all the way down to androgens, shunting towards mineralocorticoids. So you have to be careful with fluid retention, severe hypertension issues, transaminitis, so liver dysfunction patients, and then the steroids you have to give to serve as a negative feedback loop to shut down that ACTH production that's going to keep driving down the mineralocorticoid pathway. So patients that have, you know, issues with steroids, uncontrolled hyperglycemia, wound healing concerns, active infections, all right? Now, when you're considering enzalutamide, again, it's that fatigue that you get, you know, crossing the blood-brain barrier, history of seizures or drugs that lower the seizure threshold, history of brain metastases, okay, strokes, falls, dementia, advanced age. Those are the patients that I find that suffer the most, advanced age, whatever you want to call that, all right? So we should go first, and I'm just going to tell you right up front, I have a bias, and I'm not afraid to tell you my bias, okay? There's no data to guide us, but my bias is, is that... Obviously, there are potential toxicity considerations that will push you one way or another. But if everything else is equal, I think there's less fatigue with abiraterone than there is with enzalutamide. So I tend to use abiraterone first. That's reason number one. Reason number two, which I'll go into greater detail, is when you sequence them back-to-back, -back, they don't work real well. But Enza seems to work a little bit better after abiraterone than Abby after Enza. Okay? And reason number three, super pragmatic, but I do clinical research for a living. A lot of companies designing trials of post-abiraterone, ENZA plus-minus. Very few companies designing studies of ENZA, abiraterone plus-minus. So if I'm thinking about maximizing the number of treatments, getting my patient all the life-prolonged therapies and all the great drugs that are being developed in clinical research, I'm going to go with pragmatic sequencing. All right? Of course, we talked about the fact that some patients have aggressive disease. They might need chemotherapy up front, neuroendocrine small cell, obviously platinum chemotherapy. But here's some other reasons why I give abiraterone first. Here's some data from a study uh, where they actually randomized patients to abiraterone versus enzalutamide and switched at PSA progression. They didn't show any difference in efficacy, not surprising. But what they did show is they had worsening, greater worsening of depressive symptoms with abiraterone than enzalutamide. And it also shows that psychomotor disabilities is what drives that, those depression symptoms. So you can get restless leg syndrome with uh, uh, enzalutamide, you can't get more falls, et cetera. And so I think that this may be what's driving some of those symptoms. I mentioned earlier sequencing, you know, not ideal. These are all retrospective studies, and the retrospective studies show that, you know, when you're hitting the AR axis, whether you're inhibiting synthesis or whether you're blocking the androgen receptor downstream, you basically are still working via a me similar mechanism of action. So, of course, your response rates go from great from over 80% to now in the, you know, 10, 20, 30% range at best with PSA declines, as you can see when you sequence abiraterone after enzalutamide or enzalutamide after abiraterone. This is some randomized prospective data, and it was an interesting study where patients were progressing by PSA on enzalutamide, and they were randomized to switching to abiraterone as a control or continuing the enzalutamide and adding abiraterone on, all right? So uh, kind of an interesting strategy, but I guess the idea of can we get more mileage out of enzalutamide that way. And what they found is no difference, okay? Uh, but interestingly, it gave us nice prospective data on what happens when you prospectively go from enzalutamide to abiraterone, you get a big 2.5% PSA response rate. Not ideal, all right? So if back-to-back -back hormonal therapy doesn't work, what can you do? And I'm supposed to talk about chemotherapy, so this is really old school. Uh, oh, actually, this is the Alsimca trial. I thought I was going to talk about docetaxel next, but this is the Alsimca trial. This is not that old school. Is if you progress on one hormonal agent, what I think about next is either docetaxel or radium 223. And this just shows, you've seen the Alsimca trial data, this just shows that whether you get radium before chemo or whether you get it after chemo, 
there's a statistically significant survival benefit. So that's one nice thing is that you're not regulatory constrained to either that pre or post chemotherapy uh, disease state. Now, one practical thing to keep in mind is, is that when you give radium after chemotherapy or after prior radiation or with a higher ALKFOS or a higher bone met rate volume, what you find is greater chance of myelosuppression. So what that tells me is if I want to be able to give somebody radium and not worry about side effects, I'm probably better off to give it before chemotherapy. So here are my considerations when I progress on abiraterone enzalutamide is should I give them chemotherapy or radium? Well, Radium is only approved for patients who lack visceral metastases. If I wait later to if I wait till later to give radium, they have a pe better chance of having lung mets or liver mets. It's also FDA approved all, with the stringent criteria about ANC, hemoglobin, platelet count. Now, I always say this is that nobody ever double checks the platelet count when I give chemotherapy with docetaxel. No third-party payer insurance company is going to make an issue out of it, but they will with radium. So if I want provider flexibility, knowing that prostate cancer is a disease that infiltrates the marrow, and knowing that if that happens, that actually treating the disease might lead to better counts, but I'm hamstrung if I want to give radium because the insurance company says now the platelet counts doesn't meet threshold. But chemo, I can do that. So I'd rather sequence again radium before chemotherapy because it requires a preauthorization. And there is data that shows that you're apt to get all six doses of radium in if you give it pre-chemo rather than post-chemotherapy. And those patients seem to have better outcomes as well. Now, this is the slide I was thinking I was presenting earlier, which is the docetaxel data. And it's such old data there um, that uh, I often forget about it. But this is back from 2004. And uh, I should have known right off the bat because the survival curves barely are separated there. And when you see that, you know, oh, that's the docetaxel data. So docetaxel offers dramatic survival benefit in the hormone-sensitive setting, in the castration-resistant setting, two months median benefit. All right? So when I go up front, I tell patients, I'm giving this to you up front, hormone-sensitive disease, for a one-and-a-half to two-year median survival benefit. When I go to metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer, I'm putting it off till later because it's a median two-month survival benefit. So those are the types of considerations I have there. But who's ideal for docetaxel? Certainly patients who have symptoms. Why? Because I like two first. And now, uh, survival benefit's great, but with docetaxel, you get survival benefit and pain palliative benefit. If I have an asymptomatic patient with no pain, well, I can only get a one for. I want a two first. So I tend to wait till they have symptoms and I get both survival benefit and pain be palliative benefit, all right? But patients, some patients have visceral disease and you just gotta hit it hard, right? So that's when I'll also go to docetaxel earlier. I'll usually go to it in somebody who has a really, really fast rising PSA also. And of course, we've discussed the hormone sensitive disease setting. Now after docetaxel, finally we have cabazitaxel, all right? And this, when this first came out, I said, well, this doesn't make a lot of sense. In oncology, you have a drug that's now no longer working. You have to change mechanism action. So why would you go taxane after taxane? I've met, some of you may have heard me tell this story before, but I have a really, really good friend who's a PhD biochemist. And he drew me to attention to this diagram right here. And I go, gosh, it looks almost the same. And I said, can I identify any difference? And I'm just like, did Sanofi just you know, change one little tiny thing and repackage this? But... Here, you took two hydroxyl groups and you made two methyl groups there. And I was like, well, what does that matter? And he's like, you're a fool. You've forgotten all your college biochemistry. Methyl groups are way bigger. And P-glycoprotein multidrug resistance pumps are probably your most common mechanism of resistance to taxanes. This is going to hang out intracellularly and concentrate and not be effluxed out. I said, well, that makes some sense. I guess I'll rethink this, and so maybe I'll believe this data. So this was the tropic phase three data that showed a pretty significant survival benefit over mitoxantrone chemotherapy, and this is what led to its FDA approval. But the problem is the dose was 25 milligrams per meter squared, and there was a 7.5% febrile neutropenia rate, and there was a 5% or 4.9% toxic death rate. Now, the thing to consider in this toxic death rate is the fact that they did not allow primary prophylaxis. Patients couldn't receive GCS up front unless they had a problem during cycle one. Everyone that died, died during cycle one. They didn't make it a cycle two. So when I started giving it 25 milligrams per meter squared, I gave everybody growth factors, and I never had a problem. 
But subsequently, this data came out, which was a non-inferiority trial of 20 milligrams per meter squared versus 25 milligrams per meter squared. Completely uninteresting academically, <laughs> biological study. No, not that exciting, but very practically important, which is the fact that 20 milligrams per meter squared is non-inferior in terms of survival to 25 milligrams per meter squared. It has an FDA approval now, and it's way less toxic. Matter of fact, it's probably less toxic than docetaxel. So that being said and done, when I give cabazitaxel, I always give 20 milligrams per meter squared now. All right? Now, let's move on to the kind of future directions. That was my pragmatic sequencing for metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. But when do we get fancy? Well, we get fancy now, and I do a lot of metastatic biopsies, not just for research, but when you see patients that you think they might have something in, uh, unusual going on. So somebody with liver, bulky liver metastases, really bulky lymph nodes, low PSA, super high volumes of disease, or predominantly lytic rather than blastic bone mets. And what's the first thing I'm thinking about? Well, I'm thinking about a mechanism of resistance, neuroendocrine transformation, small cell prostate cancer. It's rare to see this de novo. It usually now arises as a mechanism of resistance to very potent AR-targeted therapies, right? So what we're seeing here is this is not like lung, small cell lung cancer. We're not seeing a lot of perineoplastic syndromes, all that stuff they like to test you on on the oncology boards. But you do see immunohistochemically uh, markers with chromogranine and synaptophysin. Of course, small cell, you see the distinct morph morphologic changes with small cell, but you don't have to see those changes to potentially respond to the treatment, which is basically a platinum doublet chemotherapy. All right, now you've seen this many times today, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Just keep in mind that 12% of men with metastatic prostate cancer have inherited germline alterations in DNA repair genes, okay? And probably because of somatic alterations, you're going to see up to a quarter of patients have alterations in these genes in metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. But just remember that not all of those were inherited. Maybe about half of those were inherited. The others just developed biallelic somatic alterations, okay? And this has major implications. I'll start with the family screening and prevention implications is the fact that if you have this, a geneticist will tell you 10% incidence or greater, test everyone, all right? Now, that's a big, tall order because we don't have enough genetic counselors, so we have to take our part. When you see metastatic prostate cancer, we should be offering people genetic testing, okay, germline genetic testing because it potentially can help save lives with prostate, breast, ovarian cancer, et cetera. So... But that being said and done, genetic testing may be expensive, insurance may not cover it, et cetera, unless they have an extensive family history. So Heather Chang at our University of Washington, this starts the propaganda part of my talk here now, but Heather Chang's at the University of Washington, and she started this study here called the Gentleman Study. Not gentleman, but gentlemen. And as Lenny brought up earlier, you can give this to any one of your patients and they can get free color genetic genomics germline testing buckle swab. Just Write down that website, take a picture of that slide right there, and you can give that to your patients, and they can get tested, and they will get the kit mailed to them directly if they spend 40 minutes. That's the one catch. 40 minutes filling out a bunch of questions online, and then the kit will be mailed to their home. They can do the test, mail it back, and in about a month they'll get the results. All right? So <clears throat> that's a nice option for everyone unless you're from New York. You have residence in New York. They have interesting genetic laws, apparently. Now, it has major implications for treatments. Um, everyone talks about PARP inhibitors, but anything that induces double-strand DNA breaks should work here, right? Because your problem here with DNA repair is, is that you break the DNA, you can't repair the DNA. So this is Heather's, again, data showing that patients that have BRCA2 Biallelic alterations are exquisitely sensitive to platinum chemotherapy because it's inducing double-strand breaks. We have ongoing studies there. And she has an interesting study where she's given the platinum upfront and maintenance PARP inhibitor with rucaparib. So there's a lot of ongoing things in, in this situation. Now, PARP inhibitors, we talked extensively about how this works. The key thing to remember is just to think about DNA repair mechanisms. There's a lot of different DNA repair mechanisms homologous recombination, nucleotide excision, mismatch repair, all right? And then PARP leads to single-strand break repair. 
So if you have a BRCA altered patient or ATM or one of these other, probably two is probably a better example there. If you have one of these DNA repair genes that work via homologous recombination, you've taken out homologous recombination because you have a defect there, either inherited or somatically acquired in both alleles, you have to rely on these other repair mechanisms to keep that cancer cell going. Now, when you come in with that PARP inhibitor and you take out PARP, now you can't repair via single strand break repair and all hell breaks loose, and then the cancer cell dies, and we, we cheer, all right? So that's how this really works, this whole concept of synthetic lethality. You take out one node, no big deal. You take out another node, no big deal. You take them both out, and boom, the cancer cell dies, all right? And this works. Here's Johan de Bono's data, uh, uh, Joaquin Mateo's data. It basically shows that when you have patients have biallelic alterations, I emphasize biallelic, not just monoallelic alterations, but biallelic alterations in one of these DNA repair genes, you're going to see a dramatic 88% response to a laparib, only 6% response if you don't have one of those DNA repair alterations. And you've seen this too just in another format. These are just some ongoing PARP inhibitor trials that many of which will hopefully lead to FDA approval of one of these agents or multiple of these agents, so laparib, nuraparib, rucaparib, talazoparib, et cetera. Okay, here's a little more propaganda. This was a fellow that worked with me that we looked at the idea of, do you see actual ex accentuated responses to radium-223 in patients who have DNA repair genes? And again, very, very small numbers here, but it looks very promising. So what we're doing now is we are doing circulating tumor DNA on everyone we're putting on radium, and we're collaborating with Johns Hopkins and Tulane, and we're going to do that, and we're going to map out just how good the response is to radium-223, whether we're getting dramatic super responders to radium-223 in patients who have DNA repair deficiency versus those who don't. Now on to the immunotherapy portion of it. We've talked a little bit about microsatellite instability. Everyone says this is super rare from the stand-up to cancer biopsy series. It's about 3%. Our uh, data may be a little bit biased. At the University of Washington, we have a rapid autopsy series where Colin Pritchard showed it's up to 12%. I think it really lives somewhere between 5 to 10%. That's what Johan de Bono's data shows as well. Uh, but if you have microsatellite instability from one of these mismatch repair genes, such as MSH2, MSH6, MLH1, Etc. that this usually leads to hypermutation, more abnormal neoangins and proteins that can serve for targets for your immune system to go after. And these patients are more apt to respond to certain immunotherapies, such as the checkpoint inhibitors, PD-1, PD-L1 antibodies. Now, I think this is very relevant to the urology um, uh, field right here, is the fact that when we see certain histologies that are rare subtypes, we go, oh, wow, that's a bad prognosis. What do we do about it? Well, prostate ductals and intraductal adenocarcinomas are included in that. It's traditionally cited to be 1%, although we seem to find a lot of it probably because our pathologists are looking for it, and probably because Mike Schweitzer, who we recruited from Johns Hopkins a few years back, noted that well, this is a poor prognostic population. And when you look under the microscope, the cells are kind of cribriforming on top of one another. It looks kind of like colon cancer. So I said, let's sequence all these patients and see what we find. And the initial reports were that it was a 40% hit rate on mismatch repair alterations. So we thought, oh my gosh, pembrolizumab, tezolizumab for this population is great. Now we looked a little bit harder and looked a little further and we collaborated with Johns Hopkins and with Calgary and he put together a manuscript that showed that actually 49% have some actionable alteration. It's not all mismatch repairs. There's a lot of homologous recombination deficiency, a lot of BRCA2 patients in here. All right, but that's big. And if you note, look at this year's NCCN guidelines, they've now changed it. They basically state you should strongly consider doing next generation sequencing on patients that have ductal histology. And actually, intraductal may be a little bit lower, but it's up there as well. So that's nice to know because we see ductal, and a lot of times they have suspicious lymph nodes on scans already, and we're like, ah, oh, this is a terrible prognosis, but what do we do about it? Here's something different we can do about it. Half the patients have something significantly actionable. All right, since we're on the topic of immunotherapy, this got the field very excited as Julie Graff at Oregon Health Sciences saw some data at University of British Columbia where Jennifer Bishop showed that patients that were progressing on enzalutamide had very high PD-L1 and PD-L2 expression on circulating dendritic cells. So she said, let's take enzalutamide progressors and add pembrolizumab to it. 
And she found about a 19% response rate. Now, that's not like knock you dead, but take a look at how dramatic the responses are. 2,500 PSA to undetectable. Four doses of pembrolizumab. So it's a small subset, but there are patients that are going to have dramatic responses. And some, I think one or two of these patients had microsatellite instability, but a lot of them didn't. So it's quite interesting data, okay? So Genentech jumped on. They said, let's do the ambassador trial where we're just going to take patients on enzalutamide and randomize them to enzalutamide versus enzalutamide plus atezolizumab. Overall, survival is a primary endpoint. We'll see that data eventually. So then, uh, you know, pembrolizumab has also been studied here. And in the Keynote 199 trial, they took post-dose ataxol patients, and they wanted to see response rates to single-agent pembrolizumab. And to be honest, it's not incredibly impressive. It's around in the 5%, maybe up to 9 11%, depending upon which cohort you look at. But they had different cohorts of pd one high, uh, bone med only, visceral meds. And uh, let's put it this way. It's, it wasn't dramatic enough to move forward with. But this is a study um, that presented at GU-ASCO where there's multiple cohorts of combination therapy, pembrolizumab with everything under the sun that's FDA-approved in prostate cancer. But here I'm going to emphasize the post-docetaxel cohort of PARP inhibition with pembrolizumab. And there's a little bit of theory there that shows that when you give PARP inhibition, you're accumulating cytosolic DNA fragments that lead to activation of the sting pathway inducing type 1 interferons and recruiting T cells to the tumor. And when you got more T cells to the tumor and you come in with a PD-1 or pd one antibody, that's when it might work better because you got to get the inflammatory cells there to the tumor. So here's what we saw. Some responses, right? I mean, there's waterfall plots with PSA declines, resist responses. If you look at the resist response, I thought that was pretty impressive. 29% with greater than or equal to 30% reduction in soft tissue measurements. The challenge is it was only a 7% confirmed uh, resist response, and I'm not exactly sure why they were not able to be confirmed, because usually when you respond to these immune oncology agents, it's a pretty durable response. So um, I have yet to be able to glean that data yet. We'll hope to present that in the future. But because of this, we're des we've designed a randomized phase three trial in this setting, in the post-docetaxel setting, Pembro plus Alapriv versus if you've received either Abrat or Enzalutamide, switch to the other agent. All right, this is the last topic, which I think is of extreme interest, and you've seen this slide already. There's a whole bunch of radio ligand therapies out there, mostly targeted towards PSMA, all right? And we know PSMA is highly expressed, and you can radio label whatever you want to with it. And this is lutetium. It's a beta-emitting radiopharmaceutical, and this is a small molecule, INT. You can see the dramatic images here. This is with 617, which is another small molecule. And the reason this is of importance is that there's a randomized phase three trial in the post-docetaxel setting. This is the vision trial. This thing, to my knowledge, is accruing like hotcakes. And um, look forward to seeing the results of this in the near future. So I think this has a lot of promise for the field. This is a, another agent that is being studied in the pre-chemotherapy setting. I emphasize it for a couple reasons, uh, mostly because um, it's also PSMA targeted, but it's I-131, which we're all familiar with, with targeting you know, thyroid cancers. But that's one reason. And the other reason is that most of these studies with the radiopharmaceuticals, the radioligand therapies are in the post-docetaxel setting. I like this, and I pushed the company real hard to design this study in the pre-chemotherapy setting because think about all these agents that are now moving forward to hormone-sensitive disease. What's the next unmet need? Well, after we used all our hormonal agents and chemotherapies up front for hormone-sensitive disease, when somebody develops metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer, that's got to be some sort of resistant beast. So I'm thinking first-line MCRPC ought to be a way to go. So this is a randomized phase two study of enzalutamide versus enzalutamide plus this I-131 PSMA targeted compound. All right. And then this is really interesting is I told you, showed you these beta emitters. What about alpha emitters like radium-223? Fusing an alpha emitter to a PSMA-targeted small molecule. So this is actinium PSMA, very promising early results. There's also thorium, which is another alpha emitter. These agents are coming and of great interest. So to wrap up, there's six FDA-approved therapies that prolong survival for metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. There's seven if you count M0 CRPC, but that wasn't my topic here. My goal is to get my patients every one of these life-prolonging drugs. <clears throat> if I use CPT, I use it early or I don't use it. 
Sequencing abiraterone and enzalutamide back-to-back does not have good results. Okay, so I try to change mechanism of action, go to radium-223 before chemo if I can, and then dose taxo after that. When you dose cabazitaxel, 20 milligrams per meter squared is non-inferior for survival, less toxic. Think about platinum chemotherapies for neuroendocrine small cell and for patients who have homologous recombination deficiency with DNA repair alterations. And of course, future agents like PARP inhibitors, PD-1, PD-L1 antibodies, PSMA-targeted theranostics, they're on the way. So, thanks. We asked Dr. Yu after his talk if he had any specific take-home messages for our audience. Yeah, so to break my talk down, the key most important point that has uh, practical implications is the component talking about sequencing of therapies for metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. Um, the way I approach a patient that has metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer is I first look to see whether this patient is somebody I think might be amenable to Sapul cell T immunotherapy. Given that that agent does not induce significant remission induction, it was, should be reserved for patients who have more indolent disease, no pain symptoms or less pain symptoms, slower rate of PSA rise, and that's where you'll garner the most survival benefit. After a patient receives Sapul cell T, I'll think about the second generation androgen receptor targeted agents like abiraterone or enzalutamide. And I think both agents have very clear efficacy. It's not sure that one's better than another. It's really looking at toxicities. <clears throat> Next, after that, there is some data that shows that sequencing of these agents back to back do not induce significant responses. So enzalutamide after abiraterone, abiraterone after enzalutamide generally doesn't work well. So I look towards other mechanisms of action. If a patient is symptomatic, then radium-223 is very appropriate if they have symptomatic bone metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. If not, then I'd move on to chemotherapy with docetaxel chemotherapy. And radium is approved for both pre- and post-chemotherapy setting and can be used in either situation. Now, of course, then uh, after docetaxel, cabazitaxel is FDA-approved <coughs> in that setting, and that also improves survival, and that's another novel ta taxan chemotherapy. So those are the standard of care agents, and that's how I approach a patient with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer when I think about sequencing. But there are multiple other new directions the field is moving towards. So one area is the idea of DNA repair alterations that occurs in about 23% of men with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. Germline or inherited alterations occur in approximately 12% with metastatic prostate cancer. This not only has important familial screening and downstream cascade testing implications, but it also may have therapeutic implications as patients that have uh, DNA repair alterations looks like they respond better to PARP inhibition, platinum chemotherapy, or anything that induces a double-strand DNA break. Another area of interest is the idea of using checkpoint inhibitors, PD-1, PD-L1 antibodies. There are certain patient populations that are predisposed to likelihood of response, and microsatellite instability leads to hypermutation, and that is something that across solid tumor types, if it is found, uh, there's an FDA approval for use of pembrolizumab in that setting. Beyond that, there's recent data with CDK12 alterations that show that this can increase fusions, internal tamin duplications, and that these patients might respond well to certain immunotherapies. Um, the other future direction that I think of is incredibly of interest are the radioligand therapies or theragnostics. As you know, PSMA PET imaging is becoming more popular, and there are many therapeutics that are being radio-labeled tagged to those small molecules or antibodies that target PSMA, bringing something like a beta emitter like lutetium or alpha emitters like thorium or actinium are being developed, even I-131s being developed. And so there's early efficacy in that setting, and there are uh, trials that are ongoing there. So in summary, I think the field is uh, moving rapidly towards a situation where the novel agents for metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer are not so novel for that disease state anymore. They're being used earlier for hormone-sensitive disease, and what we find is an open space for testing of new novel therapeutics for this castration-resistant prostate cancer setting, and I think we're going to see a lot of these new agents inserted there. Thank you to Dr. Lowentrip and Dr. Yu. Uh, we appreciate the audience and listening to our podcast, and please be sure to subscribe and leave a review on Apple iTunes. Thank you.